At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Nipples for men. Most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about poetry, right? They have a life to live and they're not really that concerned with Allen Ginsberg's poems or anybody's poems until their father dies. They go to a funeral, you lose a child, somebody breaks your heart, they don't love you anymore. And all of a sudden you're desperate for making sense out of this life. And has anybody ever felt this bad before? How did they come out of this cloud? Or the inverse, something great. You meet somebody and your heart explodes. You love them so much you can't even see straight. You know, you're dizzy. Did anybody feel like this before? What is happening to me? And that's when art's not a luxury. It's actually sustenance. We need it. Human creativity is nature manifest in us. And I believe that we are here on this star in space to try to help one another, right? And first we have to survive and then we have to thrive. And to thrive, to express ourselves, all right, well, here's the rub, we have to know ourselves. We know this, the time of our life is so short and how we spend it, are we spending it doing what's important to us? Most of us not. I mean, it's hard, it's hard. The pull of habit is so huge. Is a thing that worries me sometimes whenever you talk about creativity because it can have this kind of feel that it's just nice. You know, or it's warm or it's something pleasant. It's not, it's vital. It's the way we heal each other. In singing our song, in telling our story, in inviting you to say, hey, listen to me and I'll listen to you. We're starting a dialogue, you know? And when you do that, this healing happens and we start to witness each other's common humanity. We start to assert it. And when we do that, really good things happen. If you wanna help your community, if you wanna help your family, if you wanna help your friends, you have to express yourself. And to express yourself, you have to know yourself. It's actually super easy. You just have to follow your love, right? There is no path. There's no path till you walk it. And you have to be willing to play the fool. Most of us really want to offer the world something of quality, something that the world will consider good or important. And that's really the enemy because it's not up to us whether what we do is any good. And if history has taught us anything, the world is an extremely unreliable critic. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. And the desert is brimming with unreal gnosis with that speech by Ethan Hawke on creativity. Spot on, Ethan. As the saying goes, every artist is not a special type of person, 
but every person is a special type of artist. That means you. Make yourself a fool, as Ethan says, because this is the age of Hermes, and the trickster archetype is just getting started this decade, cracking his knuckles with wonder and laughter. Take a look at this world. Nobody wants easy or natural. Art is a lie that tells the truth, honey. Most of all, know yourself, as the speech says. That's the central ethos of the Gnostics. Simple as that. Know yourself is the solution to most of your problems and understanding your place in the universe. Know yourself and you can heal so much within you and the world itself. Who you think you are is mostly a construct. A program meets act machine by culture, cults, and conspiracies. However, underneath all this code lies an ocean of divinity. A galaxy of meaning, whispering to you to manifest the right life purpose and ecstatic bliss. As Elaine Pagels wrote, Gnosis is not primarily rational knowledge. The Greek language distinguishes between scientific or reflective knowledge, for example, he knows mathematics, and knowing through observation or experience, for example, he knows me. As the Gnostics use the term, we could translate it as insight, for Gnosis involves an intuitive process of knowing oneself, yet to know oneself at the deepest level is to know God. This is the secret of Gnosis. Who am I? That's the real question, isn't it? Who, who am I? Who are you? What other questions are there? What other questions are there, really? If you, you want to understand the universe, embrace the universe. The, the door to the universe is you. Me? You? Me? You are really intense. And as William T. Volman wrote on the Gnostic Gospels, as a corpus, the scriptures are nearly incoherent, like a crowd of sages, mystics, and madmen all speaking at once. But always they call upon us to know ourselves. Well, I've wrestled with reality for 35 years, Doctor, and I'm happy to state I finally won out over it. Know yourself. That's it. That's all you have to do. How do you do it? Well, that's the rub and why so many meat sacks run from Gnosticism. Heck and heckity, most occult and orthodox systems don't bother with self-knowledge. You see, Gnosticism doesn't offer a BuzzFeed listicle or parochial system or a sentient meat savior. As Alan Moore said, we have all different spiritual constitutions, so it's up to us in the end. Each of our hero's journey is different, even as the archetypal images rhyme. I've had people get mad at me when I tell them they're basically on their own when it comes to discovering their divine spark, or more like the path to their divine spark. That's the Gnostic way, as it is the artist's way. Know yourself. Play the fool even if the fool is always lonely in court. Simple as that. <laughs> I am so alone. 
As Jung wrote in the Red Book, there is only one way and that is your way. There is only one salvation and that is your salvation. Why are you looking for help? Do you believe it will come from outside? What is to come will be created in you and from you. Hence, look into yourself. Do not compare. Do not measure. No other way is like yours. All other ways deceive and tempt you. You must fulfill the way that is in you. The world will be just fine. It always is. The real tragedy is forgetting to live. Save yourself. Why you still can. Know yourself. That's the Alpha and the Omega, you shining crazy diamonds. That's heaven in a wildflower, an infinity after the doorways of perception have been cleansed. That's what I, your host Miguel Connor, has urged for decades on Aeon Bide, even as that's still the greatest lesson I must learn. Know yourself. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, so you're just an asshole. Okay, then. Hey, Miguel, you surly and cynical Gen X with a gonzo podcast about dead heretics. What about finding my higher self, my daemon, or angelic counterpart? Isn't that a way to gnosis, to self-knowledge? Of course it is, made-up listener in my head who might be my higher self. Crowley did say that connecting with your holy guardian angel was the main purpose of life. I've done so many episodes on this topic, and in this eternal now, we take a unique approach while covering the idea of the higher self. For this tool of self-knowledge, we have the honor of hosting at the Virtual Alexandria, Dr. Megan Rose. The amazing Megan will discuss her new book, Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. Her work, beyond well-researched, is preggers with insights and exercises for your finding of that part of you you've been looking for all of your life since the Demiurge told you to believe in the wrong story. But I can't go back. Don't know that you got a choice, son. No man can walk out on his own story. We only did an hour. I would say it was scheduling issues, but it was more like an Archon Bukaki on yours truly. June was a saga in disruption that included collapsing ceilings at the house, pet issues, heat waves when insulation failed and made life hotter than in a Freddy's bunghole, and so forth and so forth. But I sure have learned a lot. I have more self-knowledge, even as Kronos had a large buffet, eating all time. You're a time traveler. Uh, I prefer the term time prisoner. In any event, and due to all of this, as a bonus for subscribers of any stripe, I'm going to include my interview with Maja Dao on her book, Familiars in Witchcraft. Maja is perhaps the coolest witch around, in my view, and her observations on the daemon, familiars, and totems are a perfect complement to Megan's ideas. You're gonna need a bigger revelation boat after this episode, 
you of the broken places. We have found the witch, might we burn, huh? I hope I have served you well. 2022 has been a hard year for A.M. Bide in financial terms, even as the show grows in listeners across all channels. Even YouTube that likes to hit me with strikes and shadow bans. The Gnostic View continues to get popular. So please support or just tell as many people as you can without being burned at the stake. I know these are hard financial times for many, but please consider a one-time donation or subscribing to Red Circle as it's only $4.99 a month for full shows. Or you can join the $3 a month tier at Patreon. And remember that if you need any full show on the casa, or even a temporary subscription, I'm more than happy to help, and I do it all the time. We need Gnosis more than ever, that path to know ourselves and know God, that psycho-spiritual transformation that will make us the best possible creators, better than the creator gods and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. As Tobias Churton wrote, Gnosis is the religion of the artist, and the artist is simply man doing what man does best, being a joyful co-creator, manifesting light in the dark universe. And as I say, write your own gospel and live your own myth. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise, and this is what we come up with? Weapons? War? Surely we have more imagination than that. Led us to our interview with Megan on spirit marriage, and then the incredible bonus with Maja Dau on familiars, totems, and the daemon. Play the fool. I can't live out my days as that person. Au contraire, he's the person you wanted to be. One who was less arrogant and undisciplined in his youth. The Jean-Luc Picard you wanted to be had quite a different career from the one you remember. That Picard never had a brush with death, never came face to face with his own mortality, never realized how fragile life is or how important each moment must be. So his life never came into focus. He drifted much of his career, never seizing the opportunities that presented themselves. He learned play it safe and he never ever got noticed by anyone you're right Q I would rather die as the man I was than live the life I just saw and perhaps that's the reason that we fascinate you so because our puny behavior shows you a glimmer of the one thing that evades your omnipotence, a moral center. And if so, I can think of no crueler irony than that you should destroy us, whose only crime is being too human. Jean-Luc, sometimes I think the only reason I come here is to listen to these wonderful speeches of yours. This is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Megan Rose to discuss her new book, 
spirit marriage, intimate relationships with otherworldly beings. Megan, thank you very much for coming on the show. It is a thrill to be here, Miguel. Pleasure is all ours, and certainly the thrill, too. And always thrilling, we've also got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm very interested to hear about anything having to do with other entities. So I'm waiting with bated breath. Cool, cool. All right. Well, why don't we get started with you, Megan? How did you become interested in these uh, esoteric topics? Yeah, well, I like to say that I um, I sort of uh, came out of the womb <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was, you know, primarily it, I mean, a lot of it is constitution, but a lot of it is set and setting as well. And I uh, was raised in the Pentecostal Christian tradition. So, you know, these are the folks that are laying on of hands and speaking in tongues and channeling the Holy Spirit. And so from a very, very early age, um, I, you know, I was less than a year old when I was first filled with the Holy Spirit, um, which is an interesting story that I talk about in the book. But, you know, the, the short version of it is that I was really severely ill and my family uh, anointed me with oil and play, prayed the Holy Spirit, laid hands on me and prayed the Holy Spirit into my body. I was less than a year old. And um, <clears throat> I like to say that that sort of like lit me up like a Christmas tree with this this powerful indwelled spirit, which, you know, growing up Christian, I understood as the Holy Spirit. Um and really kind of set me on fire, which, you know, um, felt a lot like this fiery energy. And um, when you see uh, descriptions of Pentecost, right, there's the tongues of flame that were uh, ablaze and the fire in the head of the, the early Christians. So, you know, that was just sort of the water that I swam in for the first, you know, 18 years of my life. And then I went off to college and, you know, became rather disenchanted with the more fundamentalist aspects of Christianity as I, you know, got into my teens and, and early 20s. And in college, just became really fascinated with studying religion and particularly embodied spirituality, where we're having these powerful, numinous encounters with spirits, both within and without uh, of us. And fairly early on as a child, I learned that I could have that same indwelling experience out in nature just as easily as I could have it in the church. So I was a little bit of a transgressive Christian in that I was really, really devout at church, but I was also out in nature doing a lot of really uh, witchy stuff um, out in nature as well. Very cool. Yes. And your book is not just, you might say, a, uh, a scholarly or interest book. You yourself uh, had a, a spirit marriage, if you would. And you also uh, I love the book because you do talk about all the different traditions and we can get into it. But you you interview people today that have these spirit marriages. I mean, the close most people in the occult might have to this is uh, Whitley Strieber in communion because he shows this sort of erotic, sensual relationship with this quote-unquote other. But you yourself have had this since, what, 2002 that really informed your world. Yeah, it really did. I mean, I would say the uh, the. Uh, 
erotic aspects of um, spirituality have always been there for me. I mean, I didn't understand that that's what it was when I was a child. Um, but later on, um, when I became, you know, sexually active, I realized that that ecstasis that I was feeling uh, being filled as a Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit was very erotic and very, um, you know, it's like the whole body goes into exaltation. And so studying erotic mysticism and sacred sexuality really became uh, part and parcel to me studying my own um my own spiritual experiences and journey. And that's really why I became a, a student of, of religion. I went to seminary, uh, became a psychologist, all these, and a, and a holistic and esoteric healing practitioner, all with the intention of trying to understand this, um, this ecstasis that happens um, when we are in contact with um, our own innate divinity and also with other beings that we that we might have relationships with no that makes sense i mean as uh uh yuan Kuliano said eros is the binding principle of this universe sort of a, a an overlook deity that uh we need to get back to and as many have said that uh, all sex is is just information and it's one of the best ways to transfer spiritual contract uh, heredity information into our souls. Beautiful. I love that. Um, yes. And, you know, although I talk about um, sexuality quite a bit in the book, um, one of the things that was, was really clear to me was that um, the erotic or the the ways and the intimate ways in which we connect with these beings um, isn't i I think that we have to really take it out of our sometimes very western understanding of sex um, it It really ranges more into the idea of sacred sexuality, tantra, um, sex magic in that what we're talking about is the vitalism of the body, right? The orgone or the, the, um, the eros of the body as a, a quickening agent um, or an activation agent that is often, that is often what is at play when we're talking about um, particularly intimacy with other worldly beings. It's not necessarily just about pleasure, although pleasure might be a, ni a nice byproduct, it might even be sort of a, a, a boon that's part of the relationship. But often, when these beings are interfacing with us at the spirit lover level, at least the ones that we know, like, and trust, right, that we want to be in relationship with, it is often a transmission or an activation that is happening, uh, a quickening, if you will, of the, of the human psychonervous system. And so, um, and I, I like to emphasize that because I think that um, sometimes people can sort of make it sound um, overly salacious or, um, or even kind of um, something that <clears throat> that can be can be scary or triggering. You know, they're like, "Oh, there's this spirit, and it's reaching out to me, and I'm having these, you know, um, this arousal energy happen in my body. And is this okay? Is this safe? Is this right?" And um, it's 
often, although I won't say always, it is often um, the the way in which the spirit um, is setting off the bells and whistles in the body um, as that very non-human, non-physical energy interfaces with us. It's kind of like how our body is entrained to react to it, even though that might not be the the intention of the otherworldly being. No, that makes perfect sense and well said. And also in your book and also in your website, drmeganrose.com, and of course we will have this on the show notes, you talk about normalizing the paranormal. Could you tell the audience about that? Yeah, that's one of my favorite subjects um, Mm -hmm. because that really I think um, all of this that we're talking about, these extrasensory ways in which we uh, interact with and and possibly perceive the world or extraordinary entities, um, conversations with with divinities or otherworldly beings, even our own um, evolution as, as psycho-spiritual beings often here in the sort of Western framework of, um, you know, traditional academy has very much discounted, right? These ways of knowing and being the intuitive ways of knowing and being, um, and it's led to a kind of a disenchantment or a soul sickness where, um, we we don't allow ourselves the full range of our senses, which extend far or can possibly extend far beyond our five regular senses. And that disenchantment, you know, has led us into, I think, the current state that we're in as a planet. If we approached Earth, if we approached each other, if we approached ourselves through this lens of um, animism through the lens of um, there is so much more, right, than what we can taste, touch, smell, behold with our eyes. We allow the world to become enlivened as an animate intelligence that isn't humanity as the pinnacle of. Um, of the species on this planet, but as just one of many intelligent species um, from the tiniest mycelium, right? That had do amazing things, right? The mycelial network is one of the most brilliant um, intelligences on the planet to the large oceanic intelligences. And, and it might not look like our five-fingered intelligence looks, but it doesn't need to, to be in conversation and to be maybe even in a beloved loving relationship with that. And if you step outside of our, this very sort of um, limiting Western frame, at least in the Academy, um, you find that many, many other cultures revere and honor um, other ways of knowing and other ways of being that is beyond just the, the sort of quote normal. So I really, embrace and encourage, you know, my, my students, my, my clients to, to not look at 
extraordinary ESP, extraordinary experiences or otherworldly encounters or um, things that seem off the chart of quote unquote normalcy as, as weird or abnormal, but as simply the expansion, right? The expansion of our awareness, the expansion of our abilities as humans. And, um, and I'd like to, to normalize that. I, you know, one of the examples that I use is we don't, <clears throat> we don't tell the Pope that he's weird or woo woo, right? <laughs> yeah. We don't tell the Dalai Lama that he's weird or woo woo, just to use two very widely understood examples. But both of those roles and both of those people believe in the paranormal to varying degrees. You know, it's, it's just because it's framed within the auspices of Christianity doesn't mean that there isn't, I mean, Christianity is rife with paranormal experiences and um, stories and encounters. Um, and, you know, the Academy would like to mythologize that and say, oh, it's all just, you know, it's metaphor or it's uh, myth yeah. or whatever. But, but my research really points, and this is why I did the research in the way that I did it, because that the research really points to no, this is, in fact, a contemporary thing that is, that is still happening that never really stopped happening. You know, so I talk about the anthropological, the historical, the mythological roots, and in this case of spirit marriage, which is um, an aspect of paranormal uh, spirituality. But I also go into in-depth stories of contemporary practitioners who are high, you know, many, many of them were highly educated and spiritual leaders in their respective traditions. So, you know, for me, that's a really important um, counterweight to have when we're looking at, you know, religious and spiritual experience comparatively. The fact that, um, that it is contemporary and it is persistent. Well said. And yeah, I would agree with you 100%. As I, I can't remember if it was uh, Jeff Kripal or Gordon White who said, look, there, there is no paranormal. It's called nature. Go out and eat some special plants. Go to the burial places of your ancestors. Uh, dance under the moon. Go out and you will see that it's all this woo-woo is just part of the normal uh, chain of being, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Dr. Dean Radin in 2018 put out a really great book called Real Magic. Oh, great book, yeah. Yeah. And I've, I found that really useful, you know, as I was wrapping up my research, um, because it really went through some of the, the, um, the, perspectives of paranormal. Um, he, I think he looked at theurgy and um, I think he looked at um, things like remote viewing and, and ESP. And then I, I forget the third category, but he went and talked about the quantifiable data, which is great because, you know, here in the West, we love our data. We love <laughs> our bits and bytes. We love to measure things. And that's wonderful. That's fantastic. If you, you know, if you want to build a computer, if you want to break, make breakthroughs in medicine, they often require that level of quantifiable data. But when we're talking about spirit, when we're talking about the numinous, when we're talking about our soul, or even emotions like joy and love and hope and um, and and desire. Don't even get me into dreams. Um, <laughs> yeah. These is, these are not highly quantifiable um, markers. You know, we need to look at something that is qualitative. As as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, we need a, a 
qualitative change in our souls, right? To, to establish the beloved community. Quantifiable, measurable change in our compassionate action, but like our soul, that spirit, that spark that, that encourages us to hope and dream, that needs to shift. Well said and agreed. And um, on this show, Megan, we have had somebody who you uh, quote in your book or uh, cite in your book, uh, Marguerite Rigalioso. Uh, uh, we've also had Maja Daou, who spoke about her great book on familiars and the different relationships. We've had uh, Dr. Joanna Kuyava, who's uh, a tantric practitioner, but also a scholar on Western Christianity, Gnosticism, and she sort of joins together the tantric traditions with Mary Magdalene. So uh, the audience has had uh, exposure to this, but uh, in a more nuanced way, I guess the question would be, what is the difference between a spirit marriage and just a, a spirit context slash, slash guide? Yeah, I think it's a continuum. Sometimes, uh, and certainly my research points to it. So um, in the context of familiar spirits or tutelary spirits, one might have a teaching spirit that um, is with you. Um, you might have a channeling or a mediumship contract with certain spirits. And that is, that's the extent of the relationship. It can be a deep, a powerful, a meaningful relationship that may last your whole life. But it is this idea that the spirit, um, there's, a, there's a separateness or a discreteness between um, their intelligence and your intelligence. And you might merge at times and then separate, but <clears throat> you are you, they are them. And spirit and marriage is sometimes I refer to it or I like to think of it as maybe a more advanced practice, but not advanced as in like everybody's uh, aspiring to become spirit and wed. Um, it's more the idea that um, the spirit becomes indwelled or merged. I use the term marriage just because that it's the common parlance, right? We right. understand what a marriage is. It's a deep bonded commitment that is made between, um, between an indiv individual or individuals. And, um, and that is of primary importance in the, in the, in the person's life. And you spend time and effort to cultivate that deep bonded relationship. It's intimacy. Um, of, of being really known and knowing. Uh, one of my co-researchers, Orion Foxwood, who wrote the foreword to my book, talks about his spirit marriage with his fairy wife, Brie. And he says, when I close my eyes, I see into her world. When I open my eyes, she sees into my world. So it's that level of, of intermingling or what he likes to call symbiosis. And it's done through in most, in, in most cases, although there are some uh, exceptions, through a ritual and through a, a process that can sometimes take quite a bit of time for the, um, for the symbiosis to, to sort of um, take place, the, the intermingling. Um, and that, that process is often 
precipitated by the spirit, meaning the spirit or the, and I, again, I use the term spirit as sort of this umbrella catch-all term that could, you know, be a variety of different otherworldly beings, anything from deities to angels to otherworldly or off-world beings, um, what are sometimes called aliens, but anything that isn't really in a physical human incarnation or body at this time sort of falls under the auspices of spirit in, you know, how I approached it in the, in the book and research. And so it's often the spirit that initiates the marriage that comes to the individual or um, in really traditional uh, spirit marriage practices, the spirit will often go to the mentor or the elder of the community in which, and, and let them know. Uh, in the Haitian Vodou tradition, in the New Orleans Vodou tradition, it's often um, the spirit will go to the, the mambo or the ungan and say, I want to marry so-and-so in, in this house. Um, and then, you know, it's up to the human to accept or reject, although rejection, you know, I mean, accepting and rejecting, they both have the, they both have changes. They both have things that you have to take into consideration. Um, and in my own, in my own case, you know, I had, this was 20 years ago, I was a, you know, had gone through seminary, was open psychically and spiritually, but I started having a spirit come to me and, um, propose, ask to marry me. And I had no idea what was going on. You know, I had, you know, heard of it sort of anecdotally and passing um, in various uh, spiritual cosmologies. Uh, I knew about the accounts in Genesis, you know, the sons of God, the, the watchers marrying the human women and giving birth to the Nephilim. But I had no clue that it was still uh contemporary practice that it was still happening. And so, you know, in my case, when that proposal came 20 years ago, I said, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to marry you. Who are you? And what do you want? And what would the purpose of our marriage be? And, you know, I was very <laughs> sort of contractual <laughs> yeah. about it. Like, um, like you would, I would hope that you would, if, uh, if even a regular human sort of walked up to you and said, I want to marry you. And you're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> right off the bat. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat. I'm not sure about that. Where's my so, candy? Where's her first day? <laughs> yeah, where's the roses and the, <laughs> and the whining and dining? So, you know, um, in a lot of ways, I'm very pragmatic about this. I think that you go into these kinds of relationships the way that I would hope you would go into human relationships, which is, do you know, like, and trust the person? Do you want to deepen in a relationship with them? We bring things to the relationship that the spirits can't do. You know, we have this beautiful human body that allows us to create and make and, and affect change in ways that... Um, you can't quite do the same way without a, without the physical. So um, we, we do have a lot to offer and um, you know, you don't want to give up real estate <laughs> just, <laughs> just anyone. Right. So, and, and it's not really about giving up anyway. It's about co-creation, right? It's about a coming together, but you know, just to finish in my account uh, in, in my story, I 
I didn't say yes for a good 10 years. You know, I, it launched me into this research project was, which was really just all of the research and the dissertation and, and the book and everything was really <laughs> a way for me to get at understanding what was going on in my own, you know, phenomenological experience of this, um, which was, which was good because it, it, as you said, it took the research out of just theory and, 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 you know, citing what happened in history and really brought it alive, certainly brought it alive for me. And I think, you know, brings it alive for my readers when I share my own story. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Oh, it does indeed. It gives a lot of perspective. And yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I'm in my head, I'm trying to think, okay, this is different than the classical view that we have a daemon and, you know, Socrates walks out and his daemon tells him what the weather's going to be. And that's sort of it. But then you have sort of the, the Valentinian Gnostic view that you do go into this bridal chamber and you do unify like a marriage with your uh, angelic self and you two are union are mm-hmm. together forever and the mm-hmm. rest of the journey even even beyond this world and i know yeah you know we're getting sweet and boring here but even in the next world you are united yeah yeah, yeah. exactly Exactly. And, you know, I think that um, what was really useful for me was realizing that it's not a um, either or kind of distinction. Sometimes it's the difference of tradition and sometimes it's just the difference of um, the the life path, the the intention and the the entity themselves. Right. So um, if you look at um, some of the early, you know, witch trial accounts. I'm thinking right now of um, Emma Wilby's research on cunning, cunning folk and familiar spirits. Um, she talks about accounts of um, of women who were uh, going through witch trials, and as uh, part of it, would talk about their marriage to um, the horned god. And how there was uh, this very um, committed, married relationship. That's not the true. That's not true for every single witch pra- witchcraft practitioner. Um, not everybody marries the horned god. Some do. Some don't. Some may have a familiar spirit that ends up becoming more of a of a lover or a, um, a, a marriage type or a union type partner and, and some may not. And it, it's really um, what it came down to for me was what is the purpose of that contract? What's the purpose of that relationship? Um, I, I'm thinking right now of the Shakta Tantric uh, comma 
who I interviewed. And um, in in her case, uh, her Ishtadevi, the uh, deity that was her chosen deity, is Kali. And she was in a deep devotional relationship with Kali for years and years. And then Kali married her. And so here's an example of someone who is has this sort of like divine self or this deity, or this devotional deity that you're in this kind of bhakti relationship with. But then the deity deepens that relationship and steps into this marriage committed um, type arrangement. And so, you know, I've in through my years of research, I've heard it all, right? I've heard you can't marry your divine self. You can't divorce the spirit. You can't, can't, can't. And what's kind of hilarious about that is whenever somebody told me that something couldn't be the case, I would, you know, invariably end up finding a piece of research or interviewing somebody else who was like, oh no, I've had that experience or, oh no, this is, it happened in my tradition. So, you know, we don't have a lot of hard and fast this is the way it is here. We have simply an understanding that as humans, as individuals, we have the variety to have a lot of different kinds of relationships with other humans, right? We have humans that we might be lovers with. We have humans that we're friends with. We have bosom on Amkara friends. We have uh, perhaps a uh, an acquaintance that we get together with, you know, every once in a while and on and on and on and on. And that really holds in the realms of spirit as well. We might have devotional deities that we're deeply um, uh, committed to. We might have spirit lovers that are there for a while and then gone. We might have um, guiding mentor type spirits. We might have, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It really runs the the gamut of the expression of of human relationality. Oh yeah, it makes sense. I'm sure in some sort of a celestial social media, all relationship statuses are. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's never, it's like, never going to be easy. And Vance, what do you think, or do you have a question for Megan? Oh yeah, I got about five million, but uh, <laughs> the limited, of course. I was thinking, what do you think of this idea, Megan? Um, you know, say between two human beings, um, you know, we know that there are relations which are pretty much just physical, people picking up each other in bars and all that stuff. But when two people have a special relationship with each other that's beyond that, could it be that it's kind of a spirit that unites them? In other words, like, say, I could have a relationship or a marriage with a spirit, but perhaps two people could have a relationship with that spirit, which is kind of a blend of both of them and uh that's what makes the relationship special between two physical people what do you think of uh, that idea I, I i absolutely think that that's part of um how we may end up constellating around a lot of this uh, for example i'll give you a, a real life example from my own story um i did a ritual this was maybe five years or so into this sort of trying to figure out who this spirit was that wanted to marry me and figure out their cosmological location. And because they, they shapeshifted a lot, which spirits sometimes do depending on how fixed they are of an intelligence. Um, for example, 
example, like deity forms that have been worshipped unbroken in a lineage for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, have a stronger fixed identity than maybe, say, like a, a fae or a nature spirit where there's more fluidity there. Uh, in any event, um, I was really trying to suss out who this spirit was. And I, I said to the spirit, you know, it would really be useful if, you know, I, I feel like we all have divine selves or, or um, higher self expressions of ourselves that, that can flow through us uh, and, and sort of bring their blessedness through us. And that, you know, if you look at like the hermetic practice of knowledge and conversation with the holy guardian angel, the angel that we are reaching through to, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I said, I have a sense, and this was me talking to this, this spirit contact, I have a sense that there's somebody out there that you are the, the divine self for. And I had a sense that this being that I was working with was a horned god um, in that sort of fecund earth nature um, being also sort of connected to the underworld. So I was like, I, I feel like there's a divine self of someone out there that you are really closely connected to. And I would really love it. And I did a ritual around this. I ritualized it and did a working. I would really love it if you could bring that person to me so that I can have um, what in tantric practice is a dual cultivation practice, right? Where you're embodying your divinity, they're embodying their divinity, and the two of you are, are working together um, as such. And so I did this ritual, and about six months, gosh, I don't even know if it was six months. It was very quick. Um, my, my partner, my current partner, showed up in my life, very demonstratively hosting this energy. I mean, without question. And I, um, I sort of resisted at first because of the certain, you know, I talk about this at great length in my book, but there were certain things in my life that was like, Oh my goodness, is this really what's, what's going on? Um, but I got it confirmed with um, my mentor at the time. And I also had a couple of really, I had three dreams in a row. <laughs> it was basically wow. this person and I were agreeing to a consort relationship. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't ignore this. So, and, and we're still together to this day. We've been together for, for 10 years and we do that work, right. Of, of um, stepping in consciously stepping into that divine parts of ourselves. And we also have a mundane relationship. Like, let me not um, sugarcoat this with, you know, skittles and rainbows. It's, it's not no, all. It's work. It's work. It's, it's not all, all the time, you know. But, um, but that has very, and, and interestingly enough, about six months before we met, he had been in um, the UK in Glastonbury and had done a similar ritual on the tour and come, you know, not to, not to, no, spoiler alert, you know, my, my, um, my spirit husband is um, closely linked to the tour in Glastonbury. So there was just synchronicity upon synchronicity upon synchronicity that brought the two of us together. And I think that, um, you know, whether you're, I'm hosting, you know, uh, the, 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 he was calling in particularly uh, the, the goddess, right. That he wanted to serve. And I was calling in the, the horned one who I wanted to um, step closer to. And so that kind of brought us into each other's orbit 
But could you both be nested within the same divine intelligence and working that way? I think absolutely, right? Because that divinity has so many ways that it expresses and shows up. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from the Indic traditions, right? The Hindu traditions where it's not just Kali. It's like Kali has so many different faces. Ajit Kali, Shmashana Kali, Dakshin Kali, you know, so many different forms that Devi or that the god, the goddess can, can show up as, even if you're working within a particular stream of intelligence like Kali, who's, you know, considered the the goddess of you know death and rebirth and and transformation sure yeah i can see that you know what else i was curious uh, shifting gears a little bit i i can think of a uh, mainstream religion that believes in uh, spirit marriages and that is the catholic church because yeah, yeah nuns uh, are said to be married to christ and so do you think they're having the kind of relationship that you, you have in mind when you think of spirit marriage well, I, I think that it, you know, it depends on the nun. <laughs> it depends. <Of> and it depends <laughs> Some on... nuns will have none of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, you stole my joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at the um, research, uh, I, I talk about this in the book when I talk about the Beguines, right? Yeah, were... they're very Gnostic. And yeah, you talk about them. Yeah. Yes. And they were having these very erotic encounters with Jesus and Lady Love. Um and they very much understood themselves to be in a marriage union with that. Or, or um, I talk about the, the Italian abbess, uh, Benedetta, Carli, uh, Benedetta Carlini, who was um, married to Jesus and took the ring and the vows. And, you know, the, the Brides of Christ is a very um, contemporary example in mainstream religion of, of spirit marriage and of a kind of uh, spirit marriage. I was talking to someone recently and they were telling me about, you know, their Catholic school experience and, and seeing a nun and seeing that she had a wedding ring on and, and them asking the nun, you know, um, you know, who are you married to? I thought you were a nun. And she said, well, I'm married to Jesus. Right. So there's an understanding, right. That, and depending on, you know, we, I mean, we could get into like all the nuances of intimate relationship, right? Like not all marriages are necessarily procreative. Not all mar- marriages are entered into because of romance. Not all marriages are sexual, right? Think of McGregor and Moina Mathers. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons why people enter into marriage. And I think the same is for spirit marriage as well. You also mentioned Teresa de Avila. That mm-hmm. seems very erotic. Oh, yeah. I mean, St. Teresa and her encounter with the angel is uh, just, uh, I think it's a shining example of human spirit eroticism in mainstream Christianity that is uh, one of those rare examples of not being demonized, right? Normally, those uh, often get classified as, you know, congresses cum demone, right? Or, you know, sex with demons. But in her case, um, uh, for whatever reasons, you know, Teresa was uh, above reproach, um, even though when she writes about it, it's highly, highly erotic. She was well-connected. And if you were well-connected, you could get away with more in those days. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And um, what would you say would be the earliest appearances of spirit marriage in human history, Megan? Um, 
the earliest written account that I found was the uh, ancient Mesopotamian, excuse me, ancient Mesopotamian Sumerian sacred marriage. So here we have the Asinu, um, the the priests, the priestesses of the goddess Ishtar in Nana, who would marry the goddess and then serve as her temple keepers. Uh, but I suspect that because that I have found this phenomena transculturally, meaning it shows up in China and India and um, every continent, many, many, at the inception of many, many um, cultures and religions um, is a, a, one of the uh, practices that appears very um, clearly in animist and sort of um, shamanic type earth-based spiritualities. Uh, I think that it really predates recorded written history because it shows up in, in many oral histories and oral traditions as well. But the Sumerian sacred marriage, I think is the first written account that we see. That makes sense. And also you were talking about uh, how your partner chose you and so forth, but what, and for some reason, I always go back to uh, looking at the darker side. I always end up with the, uh, the emo uh, Gnostics and Kabbalists who always had some sort of dark take on things, but, and obviously they talk about um, Sukubai, Archons, the Watchers. Uh, so can these beings be bad if they're after you or what's your take? Well, my research focused exclusively on benevolent relationships that one would willingly enter into meaning again, that no like, and trust factor. So um, spirit lovers like incubi, succubi, et cetera. Um, we know from phenomenological and historical accounts that these things happen. Do you want to enter into a bonded, committed relationship with one of these entities that may not have your best interest in mind or may not be, um, respecting your boundaries or your agency. I wouldn't, you know, mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> no. it, but I'm not going to say you can't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's similar again to, I think, uh, the contract we make with human marriage. We are hopefully getting to know someone and vetting them before we sign on for, you know, merging our lives, our finances, our, our, you know, our, where we live, all of that fun stuff. So um, I think that, you know, I really advocate what I call the three D's of spirit marriage. Devotion is the first one, really w devoting ourselves to the entity or entities, because that spirit marriage is kind of inherently a polyamorous practice and that, People are often, many of the people that I um, spoke with were in human bonded, committed or married relationships, as well as with the spirit and sometimes more than one spirit, sometimes more than one human. Mm -hmm. um, but devotion, really devoting yourself to them, meaning that the entity that you're 
entering into devotion with is worthy of your devotion, right? Um, and then second, discernment. So really discerning the voice, touch, experience of that spirit so that you know that that is the spirit that you're encountering and not say a familiar spirit or an ancestral spirit or any one of your own inner aspects that could be at play at any given moment. Um, and then thirdly, discipline. And that's just showing up. Like you would need to show up for a regular relationship. You have to spend time getting to know them on a regular basis, cultivating the rituals, the practices, or finding a lineage tradition that will hold you and give you those rituals and practices uh, for ongoing contact and relationality. No, that makes sense. But there's also beyond the negative ones, uh, isn't the big time lore, the ones that you might find in the fairy lore, where this queen or king or the spirit will actually whisk you away into the spirit world. They don't hang out here. Yeah, I mean, we have the, uh, you know, stories of Thomas the Rhymer or Thomas of Ursel Dune, who was a um, Scottish laird, I think 12th century, 13th century. Don't quote me on that. I always get the centuries mixed up. Um, but he was taken into the fairy realm. And, and this, is a, this isn't just a mythological or a folkloric story. Thomas of Ursel Dune was a well-respected um, prophet and a poet. Uh, and we have his writings, we have his prophecies. But in any event, he was taken into the realm of fairy and, um, and was the beloved of the fairy king, was her consort for, um, I forget how many years he was there, and then was returned, I think it was maybe seven years, and then was returned to, um, and in his case, in his story, it turned out well, right? Because he was returned to the realm of the humans and and was returned with these gifts of prophecy and poetry that he then um, was well-respected for. Um, not all fairy lovers, turn out as well as that. Um, <laughs> but again, when you're talking about working with the Fae, um, you're talking about, as I work, you know, one of my lineages is fairy seership. And as we work with the Fae, we're not talking about elemental beings uh, as much as we're talking about primordial consciousnesses that, um, you know, depending on how you grok it, um, came here to the planet and actually helped form and shape earth and were the sort of progenitors or the, the pre-human race that, that then informed and, and um, helped accelerate the hu human development. So, um, but just, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I track a lot of the fairy lore and the various people that are talking about it and teaching on it. And there are sometimes these wide blanket statements that are made about the Fae, like, oh, you've got to be careful. And, you know, there's this taboo and there's this thing and this thing. Um, and when you look at those kinds of beings transculturally, it changes. So the equivalent of fairy beings in the West African Dagara tradition or the Kondomble. And when you're working with the, say, for example, the Scottish Fae, there's a geisa or a taboo against iron, 
But when you work with the Kondomble in West Africa, you wear an iron bracelet and that helps bond you to them. So, you know, we have to be careful about mixing and saying, well, this is a, this is a, this is true for all otherworldly fairy type beings or primordial type beings. But even within like the, the Scottish Fae, um, it's kind of like going to, it's kind of like if you came here to San Francisco and you said, all San Franciscans are like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different agendas and, and ideas and backgrounds and experiences of, of fairy people, just like there are of San Franciscans. And so you can't say for a monolithic group of people even that might have some cultural similarities that they are all like this one way of being. You just, you understand that with any person, whether it's an incarnate person or a disincarnate person, that you go with respect, you go slow and get to know them. You ask what the agreements and the agendas are, and you understand that they have a different way of experiencing and viewing the world that you do. Even from humans to human to human, we have a different way of experiencing and understanding the world. No, that makes uh, perfect sense. Yeah, there's a one story you have in your book, Spirit and Marriage, uh, on the darker side of the ferry where the individual goes and has a relationship and then comes back to the world of humans, but then suddenly 300 years have passed because time is different in these other realms than it is in the material world. And he goes by his village or something and he gets off his horse when they told him not to. And of course he turns to dust. So yeah, so that yeah. was a pretty cool story, you know, on a Stephen King kind of angle. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the, uh, that's the story of Oshin, the, mm -hmm. and that's an Irish uh, folk, uh, folk tale or um, folkloric fairy story. Yeah. And that is really about, you know, he's taken by his fairy wife into um, the fairy realm and they live there quite happily and they have a family. And then he begins to sort of miss his human life and wants to go visit. And she says, you can go visit, but don't get off the horse. Um, and for, you know, depending on the version of the folk tale that you're reading, um, he gets off the horse for various reasons and then um, ages and dies because that so much time has passed um, when he goes back. So that, I think that's a really great example of um, what, I mean, there's a few different things going on there, but what I think most is most interesting about that tale is the idea of timelessness in the other world or in uh, other dimensions, meaning here in our human experience, we are bound by our three-dimensional you know, space and time. We progress through time chronologically, at least most of the time. I mean, if you've seen um, uh, some of the multiverse movies recently, you know, you realize that there's, uh, there's maybe some wiggle room there. But we're <laughs> chronologically mostly, at least when we're dreaming, maybe, um, or in altered states. But in our... De default reality, waking consciousness, we're progressing through time in a chronological fashion. We have a past, present, and future. Um, but when you're not bound in a human physical form anymore, all of that kind of 
doesn't um, doesn't really apply. And that's actually one of the advantages, right, of having these kinds of relationships is we can work with these beings and these entities that aren't bound by past, present and future like we are. And therefore we, you know, it's, I think, one of the reasons why uh, Thomas Lorimer came back with the gift of prophecy, because there was a part of him that, you know, that was deeply connected to that timelessness and was able to sort of see as the seer does. No, it makes sense, man. It's got that very uh, Orpheus or wife of Lot sort of uh, lesson that if you tell a human being not to do something, they're going to do it. They're like kids. You know, it's all like, kids. don't touch that. That's the first thing they're going to do. Right. <laughs> uh, we are an interesting species. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, I also like, too, part of in your book, you do mention that... Um, Jung's encounters in his red book, his exploration of his inner self, could be a form of spirit marriage. And at first I was like, no, but then wait a second. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. I mean, Jung himself was there to unite with his soul. That was his big quest. Right. Yeah. Jung's process of individuation, right, is really about stepping into the true self. And that true self, you know, we might understand that to be our divine self or our angel, or, um, you know, I, I also talk about Jung and his relationship with Philemon, right? His tutelary right. spirit, which I don't necessarily think that he was married to Philemon, but I think that Jung's um, relationship with that inner figure, with that, that tutelary spirit is, is really um, telling of how, of how normal <laughs> this paranormal um, capacity that we have is, I mean, Jung attributed almost all of his major theories, the anima, the animus, the collective unconscious, et cetera, exactly. to Philemon and to those encounters that he had that he beautifully transcribed in the red book. And so, um, and I also give the example of Rudolf Steiner and the Masters. So there's some very well-respected major figures in both um, the academy and in, you know, um, philosophy that I think we don't readily attribute to being um, esoteric or paranormal, but, you know, we are discovering that that was actually a big piece of their, of their work and their, and their practice. Yeah, indeed. Uh, indeed, I agree. And well, I guess for the practical thing is, uh, Megan, who can undertake a spirit marriage or how do you go about it if you have an interest? Yeah, well, in the last part of my book, I talk about, you know, practices if you're interested in pursuing this this type of work. Um, and what I like to say is that, you know, not everybody has, like I did, a spirit showing up wanting to to marry you. We're saying, marry me, marry me. And then you've got to sort of negotiate. Um, but we all have a divine self, right? We all have a deity or an angel that we can reach through to and, and get to know that part of us that, that is, you know, um, a little bit even beyond what we would conceive of as the higher self, right? In the hermetic teachings, they talk about the angel sitting above uh, the higher self consciousness, and so we have the ability to 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 quest, to take that undertaking of the great work to to know 
and to identify that that intelligence and then to invite that intelligence to become our familiar or become our beloved or become uh, a way in which we show up as um, as a blessing, you know, and as a gift to this planet rather than as, you know, the way humanity has been showing up. And I think that that's one of the gifts that um, that spirit marriage really in the 21st century has to give is this um, encouraging us right to to step in uh, to step onto that path of self-cultivation so that we can really um, know so that we can really embody so that we can really co-create from that that expanded perspective indeed and your book talks about ways to uh, have a good spirit marriage communication always when no matter what plane of existence you talk about automatic writing self-excavation ritualizing you go you really go through the steps to get this thing going um but um i would say what do what do they get out of this megan what do they get out of us uh you know advanced monkeys yeah. Well, you know, typically the the spirit marriage um, and that level of commitment, and I won't say this is true for everyone, but for the folks that I interviewed for my book and, and for myself, it is um, something that you alone or they alone can't do. So in for me, it was the creation of the book. It was the creation of the, the material that I, that I researched um, that was the, you know, Orion calls it the love child of my, <laughs> my spirit union. But it was, you know, just like a, two humans come together and they, they have offspring, right? They may have mm-hmm. a child. Um, and that just the two of them are the only two people that could have made that one unique child. <clears throat> so we have the potential for these co-creative projects when we come together to that level of intimacy with these beings and their, their teachings. Um, you know, in some ways I felt like I was almost an amanuensis for this material because so much of it was done in ritual and, you know, with, uh, with this sort of question of where do you want me to research next? What do you want me to talk about next? Bring to me the interviewees, the co-researchers that you want included in this book. Um, so I did all of the writing and the research, but it was all a very much a, a, a dialogue with this, the intelligence with, uh, with the, my spirit um, companion. And so I think that there is, like I said before, there are things that we can do as humans, like write books or create um, poetry or art or um, projects out in the world um, that, that we are uniquely positioned to do when we step into these, these bonded relationships. Yeah, I would agree. And again, uh, hopefully more people can embrace your ideas because, yeah, we need to reconnect with the world, with the universe, uh, so much greatness out there and so much that we've lost through uh, civilization and history. And as we get to the end, Vance, do you have any uh, last questions or comments for Megan? Yeah, here's, here's a kind of a funny question. Is there such a thing as spiritual celibacy? Um, say more about that. Do you mean um, being in a 
like a, a relationship. Someone who is, well, no, I mean, someone who is determined not to enter into a spiritual relationship um, for some, for any reason, maybe they had a spiritual marriage and didn't work out or, you know, the same way that, you know, human priests uh, swear, you know, they, they take vows of celibacy. Uh, you know, it's just a kind of a combination question if there's spiritual marriage and so forth. I was wondering if there's spiritual celibacy, people that didn't want that relationship for one reason or another. Have you ever heard of that? Well, I, I think that most people aren't in erotic encounters with spirits. And that, and that may be an overstatement, but I think that um, just like there are humans that are celibate, as you said, like the priests, you can have spiritual relationships with tutelary spirits or a devotional relationship with the deity or whatnot, and it will never go beyond that, right? It right. won't go into an erotic encounter. It won't go into a marriage-like commitment. I think the erotic encounters, what in, in sexological circles, they called spirit to intimacy um, or, or spectrosexuality. I think that there's a larger number of people that have had erotic encounters with spirits. Um, and that would also include unwanted erotic encounters with spirits and that have had that experience. Maybe it was just once and, and that was it. But the people that actually move on to the intimate, bonded, committed, like marriage type relationship is a a, a, a very, a much smaller percentage of, of that group. And so, right. you know, right. as a researcher, um, you have to sort of narrow your research scope significantly enough to be able to, to, to collect data on it. And so that's why I specifically looked at marriage and the bonded relationship where they've gone through a ritual of indwelling or merging. Um, but there's a much broader group of people that just have general erotic or intimate contact. And then there's like the large majority of humanity that might never know or desire that kind of contact. So that's sort of a Reverse way of answering yes, I think. <laughs> well, maybe the earthbound celibates are trying to open themselves up more to the spiritual encounters, you know. In other words, if they're all filled up with earthly um, erotic experiences, maybe they um, are less likely to be able to partake of the spiritual erotic um, and so it kind of wouldn't work the other way around. I mean, we don't need to have spiritual celibacy to encounter more of the earthly ones. I yeah, think. I think it just depends on the human, you know, just like there are humans that are really um, satisfied with monogamy. And then there are there are people that um, that have more of a polyamorous orientation. There are asexual people who have no desire you know, or very little desire for sexuality. I mean, there's just, there's such a broad spectrum. I know that, you know, for me, during the times when I have been um, celibate in the human realm, my spiritual intimacy was, was greatly enhanced and, and amplified. Uh -huh. um, and then, you know, I did the working 
um, and called that spirit to uh, my partner. And there's been all sorts of interesting nuances in our relationship negotiating that. And what ended up happening was um, when my human partner and I began to do more of that sex magic type work together, um, the eroticism in my spirit marriage changed tremendously and it became more about a partnership um, and, and less about um, that kind of ecstatic transmission energy, almost as if that attunement was complete and then there was other things that we needed to, to be doing together. So, yeah, every, but everybody's different. You know, everybody's story and experience sure. of it is slightly different because everybody's um, psychosexual makeup is slightly different. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes total sense. Does indeed. Awesome. Well, um, I guess uh, we are at the end. Uh, where can people know more about you? Your website, drmeganrose.com. Anywhere else uh, you want to uh, send um, I do have a website for the book, and the website's just spiritmarriage.com. And that's mostly um, information about the book, some resources. And I also, if you're having, because research on this topic, I mean, I just scratched the surface I think with a book in many ways, um, yeah, at some point <laughs> we have like 10 interviews in depth. That's uh, very in depth. Those individuals, your case. Yeah. Studies, and, would. and the historical and anthropological, and I'm still finding cultures and traditions and folklore and instances that um, didn't get included. So if you have your own story or if you have a, a reference that isn't in the book, uh, you know, of a, a culture or a, a folk tale or something that um, you think is a great example of this, you can go to the spiritmarriage.com website and submit it there. Wonderful. Well, we will definitely have it in the show notes as well, so you can check it out. And I really enjoyed Spirit Marriage. Uh, well, Vince, uh, thank you, first of all, for uh, coming on along. And I hope, uh, well, I hope you don't have any... Uh, or maybe you have all this information to go catting around on your marriage. I don't know, Vance. With the spirit. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble, huh? <laughs> all right, Miguel. Thanks. Yeah, it was great being here. And uh, Megan, thank you very much for your time, uh, for your great book, and good luck with all of your uh, future endeavors. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you both. And there you have it, you shining crazy diamonds. The full and cool interview with Megan. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus for all subscribers, I'm including my interview with Maja Daou on her book, Familiars in Witchcraft. Her observations on the daemon, familiars, and totems are a perfect complement to Megan's ideas. So please become a patron at Patreon, Red Circle subscriber, or AB Prime member for the full metaphysical wedding. For everyone, let me remind you that Finding Hermes is going strong, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a monthly intimate Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. 
I've done presentation on who was Simon Magus, Abraxas, the Sethians, the Gospel of Thomas, the secrets of the serpent Gnostics, Gnostic sex magic, and much more. And it's a great tight-knit group of heretics. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover with down-to-earth professionalism, no matter what project or scope you need. That's it. If you're a subscriber, let us to our interview with Maja. For the rest, thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.